Someone asked me this morning, are we going to actually be in Luke chapter 6? I said, no. (laughs) But we are going to relate to Luke chapter 6. So this morning, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. This last week in our men's study, Monday nights, we have been talking through Proverbs and particularly honing in over the last several weeks on Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7, and uh, going to different places in Proverbs as we have been talking about the principles there. And one principle that has been laying upon my mind and heart over the last week has been a text in Proverbs 28 and verse 9, which carries implications for us in our study even here today. Proverbs 28 and verse 9 simply states it this way. If we do not listen to the law of God, if you hear the law of God but do not listen to the law of God, in other words, if you do not obey what the Word of God says when you hear it, even your prayers are an abomination. That is a powerful, powerful truth. Because obviously, we would like to think that most of the time, we are good Christian people. We, we love the Word of God. We love to study the Word of God. We think about the Word of God. The question here is, are we doing it? Are we just playing lip service with it? Are we reading the Bible but not applying the Scriptures in our life? Are we doing it? Because if we're not doing it, at least according to Proverbs 28, verse 9, if we're not doing it, God doesn't even hear our prayers. He doesn't want to hear our prayer. Certainly we would say, wow, prayer is huge. We, we should be praying. And yet God is saying, yeah, well, go do my word, and then I'll listen to you. Well, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus Christ Himself said, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies. Well, we've taken a detour over the last several weeks to 1 Corinthians 13 because we want to know what love is. Because if we're to love our enemies and if we... If we're going to hear the Word but not do the Word, then God's not hearing our prayers. Is it any wonder the Word says that God doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked? We're going to join with the wicked and just not do what God's Word says, disregard God's Word. He's not going to listen to us. And yet here we are commanded to love our enemies. What does that look like? And so we came to 1 Corinthians 13, and we are returning to this doctrine of love that is found here in this text. We have been taking our time going through it because these principles are so very important for us in putting into practice that command in Luke chapter 6 for the Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who does what God says. And so when God says, love our enemies, we need to know what that looks like because it is both a high calling and a noble calling for us. In fact, it is an impossible calling for those 
who have not repented of their sins and have a relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no way that anyone outside of the kingdom of God could ever love their enemies, particularly as God commands it. Only the Christian, only you and I who have a relationship with Jesus Christ through repentance and faith in Christ alone, only we can follow the command of Jesus and only the obedient Christian follows. I was remembering recently a Peanuts cartoon that shows Lucy standing with her arms folded as she normally was with a stern expression on her face. Charlie Brown, of course, pleads with her by saying this, Lucy, you must be more loving. This world really needs love. You have to let yourself love to make this world a better place. Of course, Lucy in her anger, quickly turns around to Charlie Brown, knocks him to the ground, and she screams at him and says, Look, blockhead, the world I love, it's the people I can't stand. It's funny, isn't it? We chuckle at that because it's so reminiscent of how the world thinks. And yet it's sad at least much to my own sadness, because I've thought like that. Maybe maybe some of us are sitting here this morning thinking like that. We had that in our mind this morning about not just the people at large in the world, but more specifically about someone here in this place. Someone sitting across the row. Someone sitting in another row. Someone in this church. Maybe we're thinking, I love the church. It's the people that are the problem. Or to say it another way, the church would be great if it wasn't for the people. Loving people can be a major challenge for us, even on our most spiritual of days. And yet, in the midst of all of the difficulty in the church place filled with sinners, a place just like us here, the Apostle Paul drops right into the middle of that, these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Instead of commending them about their love and behavior, Paul is really writing a rebuke to them. He is rebuking them because they are a dysfunctional church. Why? Because they lack the practice of love. Of course, we've been in this text for some time. This is in our first day here. We remember that in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul is declaring that love is not a feeling. Love is an action. Right? Of course, that is simply to declare that the kind of love that is being talked about here by God in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 It is experienced through how it is demonstrated. This kind of love, the only kind of love that God is, the kind of love that is commanded of us is a love that is experienced through the demonstration of it to others. After all, Jesus commands us in Luke 6 to love our enemies. Our enemies know nothing about our love for them unless we demonstrate that love for them. Now we are patently aware that this description of love is in direct 
contradiction to our culture. Because our culture always attaches feelings to its definition of love and puts feelings above everything. If I feel like doing it, I will do it. I was reading an article even this morning about someone who was taking a picture in Australia on the beach there, and it was this protest against skin cancer, and they had hundreds of people who were there in this picture, and they were all unclothed in this picture to protest skin cancer. I thought that was kind of odd. And one person they interviewed said, I was very nervous to strip down for this picture, and yet I just thought it felt right. That's what we do with our feelings. We think we do what we want when we want to do it because we feel like it. If I don't feel like it, I don't do it. That's our society when it comes to authority. If I don't like authority, if I don't agree with authority, I just won't follow authority. But as we continue to study this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, I'm reminded over and over again of the balance between how God deals with feelings and how He calls us to express love. There is an absence here in this passage on the emphasis of personal feelings. And I think that's because love is directed at us here in all of the ways as action. It is not an emotion. God wants us to know what love is and what it looks like when it's lived out in our lives. It is an outworking. There are emotions involved, surely, but love is born in action. And we live in a wicked world. We do. The city of Corinth was in a wicked world. There was pervasive idol worship going on within the church. There was ongoing sexual immorality happening with people in the church. Some of the Christians in Corinth were dragging some other old habits that they had from the world prior to their salvation into the church. One man was involved in some of the vilest immorality that could be mentioned among any person, and it was being tolerated in the church. People were usurping the authority of the headship of Christ in the church. There was selfishness concerning spiritual gifts that was running rampant and being out of control. It was chaos everywhere. If we would have walked into the church of Corinth, we would have been shocked by what was happening. And so the Apostle Paul, to combat that wickedness, begins to teach them about love. Why? Because love never fails, he says in verse 8. Love never fails. The same love that combats the wickedness of the sinful heart is the same love that is the outflow toward those who oppose us because we know Jesus Christ. It's the same love that's the outflow to any enemy of ours, no matter who they are, whether they're inside or outside the church. This is what loving our enemies looks like in practice. Now, we've already looked at 
in depth several of these qualities. And I just want to get us up to speed where we are. So let me just quickly run through these for us again. The first one is love is patient. You can read that right there in verse 4. Some of your Bibles say love is long-suffering. That is simply to say that love never runs out of patience with others, no matter how they may be opposing you. Love never runs out of patience with others, no matter how they are opposing us. That's love is patient. Secondly, love is kind. Remember, we, we used or we, we understand the root word that's used there is the word for useful. In other words, love is useful to other people. We could even say that love spends itself for others. Love uses itself for the benefit of others. Love is kind. Thirdly, love is not jealous. The Corinthian people were jealous people. The Bible tells us that where there is jealousy, there is strife and every evil thing. Where jealousy exists, you can be guaranteed there's going to be fighting going on. There's going to be every kind of evil that happens. That's a good description, I think, of the Corinthian church. They were a people filled with difficulty. There were factions and fightings that were taking place among the people. They were even taking one another to court because of jealousy. But love never becomes jealous. Why? Because love never seeks anything of itself. Jealousy is seeking for self-fulfillment. Love doesn't do that. So it never wants what somebody else has. And since it loves somebody else so much, it is thoroughly pleased that somebody else has what they have. Rejoices with them. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. For love does not brag. Love is never boastful. The root meaning of that word is windbag. Windbag. Love is not its own windbag. In other words, it doesn't shoot off its mouth about its own accomplishments. Love doesn't go around going, hey, look at me, look what I've done. In other words, since love is more concerned with everybody else's honor, with everybody else's edification, then love doesn't have a lot to say about itself. It doesn't puff itself up. Boasting is about making other people sense their smallness in your bigness. That's what boasting is. Hey, look at me. Look what you're not. But love would never do that because love doesn't brag. And then he says love doesn't seek its own. It is not arrogant, we said. Because love isn't boastful about itself, the opposite side of that, the other side of that coin is that love then never exaggerates its own image. That's what being arrogant is, prideful about who you are. When a person's arrogant about themselves, when they're arrogant about their own accomplishments, what are they doing? They are blowing themselves up. They're puffing themselves up so that others feel insignificant. That's not love. Paul says that's not love. 
You think about your life, think about your actions, think about what you do, think about how you live, think about what you say, think about how you talk about yourself. Are you seeking your own? Boasting about yourself? Bragging about yourself? Number six, number six, love does not practice being rude. Doesn't act unbecomingly. Doesn't act unbecomingly. Rude people are self-centered people. Love doesn't do that. They are saying, people who are rude say, I'll do what I want to do. It doesn't matter what you think about it or not. That's rude. Think about your social media accounts, what you put on them, how you think about them, how you write out your things on them. Do you think, well, if you don't like it, just don't follow me. Well, I'm telling you here, that's not love. If you love others, you won't do that. You won't act rudely because love is never rude. Love always takes into consideration how whatever it's doing, its actions, how they're going to affect someone else. That's what love does. So it strives to never behave rudely. Number seven, love doesn't practice self-seeking. Verse 5 says it does not seek its own. Love never practices self-seeking. That's simply just to say love is not selfish. Love is not selfish. Those are poignant words for the Corinthian believers. They were acting very selfishly in the church. They sought only personal edification. It was about them, what they wanted Love, however, is selfless rather than selfish. We're going to be loving. We need to be selfless to others, not selfish with us. And then number eight, he says, verse five, love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. What does that mean? Literally, that means love does not practice sinful anger. Love does not practice sinful anger. We might even add, love is not easily irritated or upset. Remember we said the root of that word means to to sharpen by irritation. To sharpen by irritation. Love doesn't easily get irritated. Now, be very easy for us not to identify the issue of anger in our lives. None of us, I don't think, would really go around saying, yeah, I'm an angry person, watch out for me, because I have a very short fuse. We, it's not easy for us to identify that. You say, what do you mean? Well, I mean, if I don't raise my voice, if, if, if I don't fly off the handle, then I can easily convince myself that I'm not an angry person. But it's not so easy to get away from this when sinful anger includes being irritated or just upset. Because that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. We all have things, we all have issues, we all sometimes have people who are irritations to us. They are provokers. Or at least we allow them to be. But love never gets sinfully irritated. Love never gets sinfully irritated. It never gets sinfully upset at that. 
What are you saying? What I'm saying is a loving person doesn't get angry, doesn't get irritated, doesn't even get upset when somebody opposes them, when somebody offends them. I think I said it when I was teaching through this some weeks ago. We ought to be like cardboard. No one has ever offended a piece of cardboard. That's what we ought to be. Of course, we understand that we're not talking about righteous anger when we talk about anger. Righteous anger is that which offends God and his character, right? That's good, unsinful anger. But that's not the anger Paul's talking about here when he says love is not provoked. Love doesn't get sinfully angry. What Paul is describing is sinful anger at personal offenses. So the loving person refuses to allow those things to fan a flame of sinful anger in them. Now think about that. You have an enemy who's against you, someone opposing you, and they actually do oppose you. They're an irritant to you. They're a provoker of you. What is your response to that? If our response is sinful anger, then don't go asking God for strength with that. God wants you to just operate in love. He's commanded you to love. He's shown you how to love. He wants you to practice not getting sinfully angry. Then you can go pray to God and he'll go, oh, hi, how are you? Right? If we hear the word but we're not doing it, God says, look, don't come to me with your prayers. It's an abomination. That word abomination is a very strong word in Scripture. There are other things that are an abomination to the Lord in Scripture. You know what they are? Lying homosexuality, transgenderism, transvestism, murdering children. Those are all listed as abominations to the Lord, and yet our prayers can be an abomination to the Lord if we do not do what He says. So love is patient. Love is kind, not jealous. Love does not brag or boast. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking and is not easily irritated or angered. And then finally, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Or I think as we stated then, love does not practice record keeping. In other words, love has no place for resentment or grudge holding. Love has no place for resentment or grudge holding. I would say probably of all of these characteristics, this is where we sinfully live when we're not loving. We hold grudges and we resent things. And oftentimes we use those in our history recall when we're in some kind of discussion with somebody, as my relatives used to call it when they were having an argument, they'd say it was a discussion. I'd say, well, it's a pretty loud discussion. You're not discussing, you're arguing. The love doesn't even register the evil done to it in some kind of mental log to bring it up sometime later. 
That doesn't mean that when somebody does something against us, and sometimes they are heinous things done against us, that we'll forget those things, because there are scars that happen, emotional scars, difficulties in our life, things like that that are difficult to forget. Time fades those a bit, but we do not forget, and yet we can still love even though they're there. We can choose and must choose to never bring them up. And because of that, when we love in that way, love is always willing to forgive the wrong. Love always remembers what Christ has done for itself. Love knows in the heart of the one who's loving, love knows what Christ has accomplished on their behalf. And so love can reach out and forgive. And so that brings us to where we left off last Lord's Day. Verse 6. Verse 6. Verse 6 says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Now this tightens the noose a little bit more upon us when it comes to the interaction with one another. Because verse 6 gives us one more thing that love does not do and one that it does do. And both what it does not do and what it does do, both of them have to do with finding pleasure. Finding pleasure. Or to say it another way, in what does love find its greatest joy? In what does love find its greatest joy? First, love does not find its greatest joy in unrighteousness. Some of your translations may even say, love does not find joy in sin. The word is adakia in the original language. It is that which is against or or that which has no righteousness. That which is against righteousness, or that which has no righteousness. And sin certainly fits that category. Sin is unrighteousness. So love finds no joy in anything that is not reflective of the character of God. God is righteous. So love doesn't find any joy in anything that doesn't reflect righteousness. But notice, notice it finds its greatest joy in the truth. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus is the truth, and love finds its greatest joy, notice, in the truth. You notice that it doesn't say it rejoices in truth. It says it rejoices with the truth. The truth. That's important because that means a body of truth. The truth means a body of doctrine that reflects the nature and character of God Himself. A body of doctrine that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ. Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2, 
offers, I think, the proper attitude when it comes to concerning truth. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So there's the description of both sides of the coin. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. In other words, according to Psalm 1, the blessed person despises evil and finds his greatest joy in God's truth. And therefore, because his greatest joy is found in the truth of God, he practices meditating and obeying the Word of God. Psalm 5.4 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Making a declaration about the character and nature of God Himself. He's not a God who loves or rejoices in wickedness. In other words, the God who is love, as 1 John 4, 8 tells us, God is love. The God who is love delights in what is true and what is righteous. God loves us, it says in Scripture, and He desires truth. Psalm 51, verse 6 says, He desires truth in the inner parts. So think about it. God does not ignore our sin just because He loves us. People say, well, God is love. You you can't say that. You can't go and do that with people. You can't contradict people. You can't come and, and, and challenge people with these things because that's not loving to them. Well, listen, God loves us, and because He loves us, He doesn't ignore our sin. In fact, it is because of His great love that He provided the means of cleansing our sin in Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.10 says. So true love does not rejoice in untruth, but it rejoices in the truth. That is to say that it rejoices in what is right and what is good as defined and described by God through Jesus Christ. That's what love loves. Love loves the truth. The truth as defined by God as revealed to us through Jesus Christ. So now, let's take that. This is very important. This is practical for us. Let's take all that. We can conclude then, with all of that, that since truth is the constant companion of righteousness, right? Truth, righteousness, we love, wants that. They're together. Truth and righteousness are together. Since it's the constant companion then it's also the constant companion of love. The biblical love that God is talking about. Love and truth, true biblical love, walks with the truth. Let me say it another way. It is the very character of biblical love. Listen to this. It is the very character of biblical love to bring the truth of God into all issues and all situations of life. Let me say that again. 
It is the very character of biblical love. The Bible says, love your enemies. Love one another. This is the commandment which I gave you to love one another. It is the very character and nature of biblical love to bring the truth of God into all forms and issues and situations of life. Nothing escapes the scrutiny of the truth of God. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in our study of Galatians in our evening service, Galatians 5-7? The Apostle Paul said to the Galatian believers, listen, you were running well. You were going along so well. It it, it seemed like things were happening in you and and, and you had believed and and you're walking and and it seems like things are going well. Who hindered you from obeying, what's he say? The truth. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You, you, You stopped walking with the truth. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, similar thing. In Him, that is in Christ, you also, Paul says to the Ephesian believers, after listening to the message of truth, what's that? The gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul says, listen, you believed the truth. You you walked with the truth. You you loved the truth. Colossians 1. Beginning in verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and love which you have for all the saints. Why? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Paul just says this all over the place. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. For this reason, God will send upon them, he's talking about the unbelieving world, a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth, who took pleasure in wickedness. Interesting. They rejoiced in unrighteousness rather than rejoicing in the truth. But they say we're loving We just accept everybody as they are. Just come. We'll accept you just as you are. Remain as you are. Do whatever you want as long as it's good with you. That's the world's definition of love. But that's not God's definition of love. God never rejoices in unrighteousness. They're not following the truth. They take pleasure in wickedness. Paul goes on to say, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel, that you might gain glory, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by this letter from us. Paul says, listen, stand with the truth. You may stand alone, but at least you're standing in the right place. You're rejoicing with truth. That's what love does. But if I stand there, pastor, my family might leave me. But if I stand there, I might get fired. But if I stand there, I might lose friends. But if I stand there, I might be alone. Yes, 
all of the above could happen. But love rejoices with the truth. Love just doesn't take it and sweep it under the rug as if it's some kind of issue. They, well, I just won't get involved. So listen, anything, anything in our lives, anything in the world, anything in the life of others, anything that covers up sin, anything that seeks to justify wrongdoing, if that's how we are living, then know that we are living polar opposite to godly love. If we're just accepting it and doing nothing, just living with it, it's okay, everybody's good, because I don't want to ruffle feathers, I don't know, that might cause a rift. If we're doing that, we're living opposite of what God's love is, because that kind of living is opposite of the truth. It's opposite of the gospel. The gospel doesn't come in and say, oh, listen, hey, I know you're having some issues with your life. I know there's some problems, but I can tell you a better way to live, and that's by believing in Jesus Christ. Don't worry about changing your life. Don't worry about getting rid of anything you're doing. Don't, don't, nah, that's not an issue. Don't worry about that. Jesus will just take you as you are. Wrong. Jesus will save you as you are, but he won't leave you as you are. Any love that says you can just go and do whatever you want to do, just attach Jesus to your life, or that doesn't want to get involved because it might cause a rift or cause trouble when it's clear there's some sin issue going on, it's opposite of the gospel, and that means it's opposite of Christ. And if it's opposite of Christ, it's opposite of the truth, for He is the truth. So listen, beloved, biblical love doesn't sweep sin under the rug. Biblical love doesn't try to find ways to get as close as it can to bad behavior. Biblical love doesn't make statements like this. Well, what's wrong with it? Biblical love doesn't make a statement like that. Why? Because biblical love doesn't put up with unrighteousness. Biblical love is always concerned with what's right with it, not with what's wrong with it. Why? Because love treasures truth. It rejoices with the truth. It honors righteousness because true love has nothing to hide. And so in knowing that, we can love our enemies. Knowing that means we can go on sharing the truth with our enemies. We can share the truth with those that oppose us. We can do it time and time again, even though they oppose us. We can do it with gentleness. We can do it with humility. We can do it with kindness. We must do it with patience and kindness. We must not be jealous or bragging or arrogant or unbecoming in how we do it. We must not become the problem, even though they think we're the problem. We must just stand with truth. We can rejoice in truth, but we must never rejoice in unrighteousness if we love. Why? Because unrighteousness goes against God. And since we love God, then we don't want Him to be dishonored in any way. But David was trying to say in 
Psalm 69.9, when he said, zeal for your house has consumed me. Of course, Jesus was a prophecy really concerning Jesus. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me, David was saying. Whatever dishonors God dishonors me. That's what David's saying. Whatever God hates, I hate. People say, you can't hate people. You've got to hate the sin. You can't hate the people. Listen, we don't hate people. The reason we love them is why we tell them the truth. We cannot rejoice in sin. We cannot turn a blind eye to our own sin or to anyone else's sin. We have to deal with it. I mean, you just look around our society and the kinds of things our society does for entertainment. Kinds of things that are tolerated by our society. Flaunting of every kind of sinful practice without any kind of shame is now open in the public square of our society. And a Christian who rejoices in that or a Christian who tolerates that doesn't understand what it means to love God. Why? Because all of it is offensive to the holiness and purity of God. So love rejoices with the truth, it said. And so on a very basic level, to exhibit God's kind of love to our enemies, we have to have God's perspective on sin and righteousness, don't we? We're going to see our enemies loved as we are commanded to love in Luke chapter 6, then we better we better have God's perspective on things. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying even prior to the words in verse 27 of chapter 6. Remember what Jesus said? Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. You see, how can you have that attitude? How can you have that that fortitude to stand strong in the midst of that kind of onslaught that comes at you seemingly day in and day out. Well, the only way you can have that is to know that you're blessed because your sin has been forgiven you. You're standing with God. Yours is the kingdom of God that you have a hunger and a thirsting for righteousness sake. And and when you seek after those things in the word of God, God satisfies your very soul that you Whenever you see your sin, you don't boast and brag about any kind of righteousness of your own. You boast about God and Christ. And when you see your sin, you mourn over that sin. Because you know that even though you sin now, that sin has been forgiven in Christ. And that brings a joy to your heart that you stand with Christ. And therefore, when men hate you, and when they ostracize you, and when they cast insults at you, and when they spurn your name as evil, because you are a Christian, you can be, as verse 23 says, be glad in that day. You can stand there with a smile on your face as your unsaved children who want to spurn you because you're a Christian mother or father who challenged them as they walk out the room and say, you guys are wacky. You can stand there with joy in your heart even though there's pain in your very being because they're doing that. Whereas your relatives reject you because you've shared the gospel with them a thousand times and they say, listen, don't ever talk to me about that again. 
You can have joy in that day. In fact, the text says leap for joy. Why? Because you know that in the glories of heaven, there is great reward for you with Christ. And they treated all the other prophets that way. You don't want to be with the other group. You don't want to be with those when all men speak well of you because in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets, the unloving. And so Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Sometimes our very prayer for those who mistreat us is a sinful prayer because we're saying, God, get rid of this person because he's really bugging my life, and yet we're not even doing what the Word of God says. Jesus goes on in that text to give us examples of how this love is outworking in the life. They hit you on the cheek, offer him the other also. They take your coat, give him your shirt too. Give to everyone who asks you, whoever takes what is yours, don't demand it back. Love them. Treat them like Christ. Treat them the same way you want to be treated. That's how you want to be treated. Makes no sense to you love them like, like the world loves, because if you love like those who love you, what credit is that to you? To you? Sinners do that. What good is it for you if you do good to those who do good to you? What credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. I'm going to get something back. I'll do for you. I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. That's the, that's the love of the world. The love of the Christian isn't like that. The love of the Christian is, listen, it's all the Lord's. It doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter in this life what God allows. I understand the providential hand of God. I understand His care for me. I understand that He is concerned about me in ways which I could never see or understand. And what is seemingly painful to me here and what is actually painful to me here is great joy and rejoicing in the glories of heaven. If the Lord takes me home, praise be to God. The more we love the truth, the better we can love those around us, beloved. The better we understand love, the more we will sorrow over our sin. The more we will sorrow over the sin committed by others that we see around us. I believe that sometimes we think of righteousness only in relation to God. The implication... 1 Corinthians 13 is that we must think of it in relation to any sin. Any sin is unrighteousness. Therefore, we must deal with it. Why? Because of love. Because of love. Love deals with it. Now go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 for just a minute. I read out of chapter 2 just a few minutes ago. But I want to return to chapter 3, and we'll end with this this morning. Notice verse 5. Verse 5 says, And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. That's the great desire of the Apostle Paul. 
in his prayer for these Christians in Thessalonica. He had lauded them in 1 Thessalonians as the church to follow. This, this is a church, the model church. And here's his prayer for these Christians. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. In other words, it's my desire, beloved, he says. It's God's desire, in fact, that you be characterized by love. Right? This is his prayer. Chapter 3, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly, be glorified as it did with you, that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. The Lord's faithful. See, there's the sovereign hand of God. Paul's understanding that. Listen, we want to be delivered from that. We'll ask God, listen, deliver. We don't, we don't want a hard life like that, but we understand that it comes. The Lord's faithful, and He'll strengthen and protect you from evil. So trust Him. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you're doing and will continue to do what He commands, that you'll be obedient. Paul says, listen, we, we, we're trusting the sovereign hand of God in your life. We, we know that, that we all stumble, we all fall, we all have problems. Trust God, be obedient to God, and may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Into the love of God. So how is that love manifested in action? How is that love manifested in action? Well, notice verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you, notice, keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. You say, wow, Paul, that seems rather harsh. That seems rather harsh. That doesn't seem very loving at all. You're telling us, you're not just telling us, you're not suggesting it. In fact, we are being commanded by God through you in the name of the Lord Jesus that we stay away from, keep aloof from every brother. You know what brother means? That's everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, who leads an unruly life. What's that mean? An unrighteous life. They're just walking as they want, no worries. I don't care about sin. They're not living according to the tradition which you receive from us. What traditions? Stand firm and hold to the traditions. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, you were taught whether by word or by letter from us. The word of God. That's what he means. The doctrine, the truth, the body of truth. Notice how much further it gets. Verse 14 of chapter 3. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. Don't regard him as an enemy, verse 15, but admonish him as a brother. What is Paul saying? What's, what's God saying through the Apostle Paul to us? Paul is saying, listen, you find somebody who's a believer who is continually and willfully disobedient to the truth. 
willfully and continually disobedient to the truth. In other words, he's unrepentant. They're unrepentant. You've challenged them. They're unrepentant. What do you do because of love? How does love act in that situation? You deal with the sin and possibly you even put them out of the church because of unrepentance. You cut your fellowship off from them. You cut it off. You don't keep a secret relationship over here, even though maybe they've been put out of the church and you have this secret little relationship over here nobody else knows about, but you you just don't want to close that door because after all, you know better than God. You don't want to close that door. Maybe that'll be the avenue to which God brings them back. No, that's not what God says. God says they need to be put to shame. They need to understand the shame of what they're doing. You cut off fellowship from them. You don't have anything to do with them. That's what cut off fellowship means. You don't have anything to do with them. Why? Because that's part of letting the love of God direct your life because love hates sin. Love goes to the sinner and says, that's not right. Don't do that. Love desires the purity of the fellowship. And so it deals with, and it even removes the sin that might infect the rest of the body of Christ. This is why I've always said, listen, listen, beloved, what we do here is one thing, what we do outside is the same thing. We are part of the body of this church. What we do as people reflects upon all of us. Remember John 2? I read it this morning. Second John, I read it this morning. Second John, verse 6. This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Well, there's been many deceivers who have gone out into the world. They say that's not love. They don't even believe in Jesus Christ. They don't acknowledge Jesus Christ. John says that's the deceiver and the Antichrist. So watch yourselves that you might not lose what you've accomplished or what we have accomplished, he says, but that you may receive the full reward. So if anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, don't receive him. Don't receive him into your house. Don't give him a greeting. But the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. That's why I told you that time some time ago when the two Mormon guys came to my house and I said, no, I don't want to listen to you, but I'll be glad to share you what I have to say. Of course, they didn't want to hear that. They didn't stay around long. I didn't say, hey, how are you guys doing? Let's sit down and have lunch together. No. I didn't want to do anything that would encourage their false teaching. just wanted to challenge it with the truth. They left thinking I was all out of my mind. Sure, I got a big X on their map, say don't go to that house anymore. It's okay. Lord knows. That's loving because love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. Love rejoices in the truth. Paul says, 
Love rejoices in the truth. So when sin happens in the life of a Christian, you know about it? Don't rejoice in it. Don't go about talking to others about it. Go to that person and help them be restored from it. That's love. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, this is the more excellent way. Not what you're doing. Not the way you think you're handling things. The more excellent way is this way. So how do we love our enemies? How do we love our enemies? By rejoicing in the truth. Standing against sin. Not rejoicing in unrighteousness. So my exhortation today is simply this. May we be truth lovers. May we be truth lovers. You say, man, when are we going to get through 1 Corinthians 13? In these chapters? I don't know. I don't know, but we'll get more next time. We'll get more next time because there's only one verse left. I mean, after all, that shouldn't take too long, right? I know, I know. We'll get back there. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us, patient with us, kind to us. You never boasted about yourself in any kind of sinful way. You only showed us the very nature and character of your righteousness through Jesus Christ. And then you loved us to the point of going to the cross. Even while we were your enemies, you died for us, sacrificed everything, that we might have life in your name. We didn't deserve it. Father, may that attitude, may that heart be well up inside of us when we are being opposed. May we see it that way. Not an opposition to us in any personal way, but an opposition to the truth. Help us be reflectors of the truth because we love the truth. Lord, if there be any way in which in our life we're loving righteousness, we're dabbling with it far too close, Lord, may that be open to us in our heart and our eyes so that we can turn from it and walk in righteousness. Lord, thank you for these principles. Thank you for this truth. May we indeed love our enemies as you have commanded us. All for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.